it's not just you, Eric. They'll stream in. Awesome. All right, let's pray before we get started this evening. Father, thank you for um, getting us here safely. Thank you for the opportunity that we have week after week to come together in community and just um, explore what it is that you have for us in the Bible. Lord, I just pray that your, your spirit would be present um, with us. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive um, what it is that you have for us. I pray that you would also just prepare our hearts to ask good questions and um, give ourselves permission to wonder. Lord, I just pray that you would be honored and glorified this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We are in Matthew chapter 14. We're going to start at um, verse 22, and we're going to go through chapter 15. If you're in a blue Bible, we will get started on page 820. All right. Immediately, he bade his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was long away, a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began sinking, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of the place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your, fa your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. 
So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. When the disciples came and said to, then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are, the, they are blind guides. And if, a blind lead, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth, mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat, what, eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region cried out, came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to, I, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when, he, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed this great crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, 
and they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Anybody else was like, wait a minute, didn't we just hear some of this? So backing up a little bit to last week when we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, we also we, we put this together with what we see today at the beginning with Jesus walking on the water. And these two things, they further demonstrate Jesus' supernatural power. What we know from John's account of this, uh, of Jesus walking on the water, when he was feeding the 5,000, the people that he had fed realized and recognized who he was, and he was the prophet that was to come, and they wanted to make him king. And John says that they, he was concerned that they were going to literally take him by force and make him king. So he wanted to disperse the disciples and the crowd, and that's what he did. He sent the disciples on a boat, dismissed the crowds, and then he went up to the mountain to be alone and pray. But by the time Jesus came down from the mountain and to get back to the disciples, the boat was across the lake quite a ways. There was a storm that had probably pushed them out. By the time, by that time, there was no way Jesus was going to get to them. The Disciples look up, and here is this spirit thing, maybe a ghost, they said, walking across the water, and they are frightened. They think it is a ghost. And they cry out to him, they cry out to him he, and they are afraid. And some of us this morning were saying, why, why, do they not, why would their first guess not be Jesus? They've seen him do so many miraculous things. They've seen the power of his super, they've seen his supernatural power. So why are, why are they not able to just say, oh, that actually might be Jesus? They don't, and they're freaked out. And Jesus says to them, do not be afraid, it is I. Mark and Luke did not include any information about Peter and their um, telling of this story. They really just focused on Jesus and his powers and being able to walk on water. So initially for Peter, when he got out of the boat, he said, if it is you, command me to walk on water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter gets out of the boat and he's walking towards Jesus and he's focused, right? And then he realizes, wait a minute, I'm on water and there is wind. Uh, real bad things could happen, and he starts to sink. And as he sinks, he says, save me. Jesus reaches out a hand, and they get back in the boat together. When I read this, I envision some interesting things. Like, for example, I'm afraid of heights. I don't like ladders. I don't like things that are like suspended from point A to point B in this like really large crevice, especially if it's a swinging bridge. So 
if I'm on a swinging bridge and Steve's on the other side and he's not afraid, so he's like all the way over there, and I'm scared, and he says to me, Amy, look at me. Keep your eyes up here, look at me, and just walk towards me. So I'm walking, but that's not a natural thing to do because the danger, there's danger below me, and I want to make sure that my footing is right. So it's my, it's my natural inclination. When somebody says, don't look down, who looks down? Hello. Even if you're afraid of heights, I still look down. If you are a dancer and you have to do something with balance or turning, they, they say, find a spot on the wall and keep your focus back on that spot and you will be able to keep your balance. So it's this idea of focus. Peter took his focus off of Jesus and he actually focused on the danger that he could have been in. And it's not that he lost his faith, because sometimes people will read this and say he had faith or he didn't have faith. He was actually distracted and his focus shifted. His faith wavered. As he began to sink, Jesus reached out his hand and he was back securely with him. Why do you have doubt, he says. When they got back to the boat, the wind stopped and the disciples identified him as the Son of God and worshipped him. So yeah, you are who you said you are. This morning also in our discussion, somebody had pointed out um, that the disciples seem to need constant reminders of who Jesus is and what he's capable of doing. And we're like that sometimes. We talked about, like, we think about we can't necessarily believe that Jesus is going to be able to carry us through something, right? This is a cycle that I go through often, right? I can see Jesus working in me, through me, all around me, and things are great. Things feel good. This is how this works. And I go along, and pretty soon, things are getting harder, they're feeling more painful, more and more is piling on. And pretty soon, I'm like, Jesus, help me. I, I can't do this by myself anymore. I need you. And when I look back, what I realize I did is when things got comfortable, I went like this. Or when things got uncomfortable, I went like this, and it was even a firm, more firm grip. And so when I do this, I'm not trusting, I'm not keeping my focus on Jesus, I'm focused on what I need to do, what I'm capable of doing, and what I will do to get done what I need to get done, which is usually kind of like shoving everybody out of the way. Like, I've got these things, you might be in my way, but I'm going to get these things done. But rather than doing that, when I get to that point, I'm like, I can't, I cannot. And so what I, re I have realized recently is, rather than this, when I know I'm in that spot, go like this. For me, this is this reminder that I'm holding on so tight 
because I'm trying to do it when really I should be like this, trusting in him, staying focused on him. The disciples were called to Jesus to follow him and stay focused on him. We are called to follow Jesus and stay focused on him as well. In tonight's text, there are three more examples of Jesus attending to large crowds. And we see crowd after crowd finding their way to him. And this is even in the midst of the opposition and rejection that he's experiencing. He's still going and ministering to people. And they are finding him because they're hearing about him. Moving on to chapter 15, we see another example of opposition, speaking of opposition. But more importantly, a message from Jesus about the true source of purity and righteousness. So Matthew tells us that Pharisees have heard what Jesus is teaching, and they come from Jerusalem. Now, if they're coming from Jerusalem, it might be that they have some authority, or maybe they're important. They came from the big city. I feel like sometimes people have the expectation that if you're from a big city, you have authority and you know better. No? Mm. Okay. All right, then. Big city, maybe authority, maybe important people. And so they come and they are going to confront and ask Jesus what he is teaching and why. They heard about Jesus and they wanted to know why his disciples are not following the tradition of the elders. Their accusation is about Jesus teaching people to deliberately break from the tradition because that would have been unthinkable for a religious teacher. And remember, Jesus is Jewish and he's teaching. He's considered a rabbi. So for a teacher to break from this and actually tell people not to do what the Pharisees, the scribes, are telling them to do is unthinkable. He should not be doing that. It's outrageous. So they're talking about washing hands before eating. And it's not washing hands like we think about washing hands, like a hygiene thing. It's different. So the law, which was given by God to the nation of Israel, prescribed that priests would wash their hands and wash their feet before they would be part of um, like a ceremonial, a ceremonial ritual. They needed to maintain their purity. And so washing was symbolic of that purity going into the ceremony. The traditions of the elders, however, okay, the laws are what God had given the people of Israel in the Old Testament. The rituals of the elders are actually now extended to all people, not just the priests, but now all people should wash their hands. They're requiring it to remove defilement Okay, when you think of defilement, you think of something that would spoil or corrupt something. And so we need to wash before we eat. We are incurring 
defilement throughout the day in so many things that we do. And the Pharisees would have identified many things as unclean or bringing defilement to them. It would have been very unlikely that a person would not have to wash their hands and clean themselves of any of this impurity or defilement. So their rationale for this kind of add-on, the tradition of the elders, is that if the hands of an unrighteous or unclean person touched food, the food would become unclean, and then the unclean food, when it's eaten, would cause the whole person to be unclean. So this is their rationale for having everybody be part of this ritual of washing hands. These traditions of the elders were not the laws that God had given them, but they did come out of this desire to keep and honor the laws that God had given them. But the, but the tradition of the elders were kind of like an add-on. An add-on to what, Jesus ha- or what God had given them. In a sense, they were added by the Pharisee, Pharisees and the scribes to further ensure or provide a further insurance or security that a person's right, security that a, that a person was righteous before God. They were pure before God. So these add-ons would add a little layer of security or assurance. The Christian church, for a long time, has um, had a history of add-ons. There are many traditions and practices and rituals uh, that religious leaders throughout history have communicated kind of added on. One of the things that I like about um, studying the early church history, and I really in school was not a huge history person, but the early church history, it's interesting because it, it has given me this understanding of in the very beginning when the church was building and growing, how some of these ideas came to be some of the ideas that we are aware of today. So, for example, um, we believe that baptism is not salvific, right? It means that you don't have to be baptized to be saved. Being baptized doesn't give you salvation. So what was, what's interesting to me is that in studying in the early development of the church and as the church grew, people were recognized that there needed to be leadership. As things grow, there needs to be leadership. And so there were these layers of leadership. And bishops became a leader in the church. And bishops were going to kind of control who was going to be baptized. People could not be baptized without the bishop knowing and without the bishop's permission. And along the way, there were bishops coming together that decided that baptism was salvific. And it was salvific because there was a need for the original sin to be washed away. And that's a, that's a theological um, idea that was part of the early church. And so that's an example of an add-on. 
And I think sometimes in traditions now, we can see add-ons and we might wonder, why do we do that? What does that actually mean? And I think it's important for us, like last week, we talked about the importance of asking questions and clarifying and getting understanding. And I think this is another thing that we can ask. Why do we do that? Let's have a conversation about it. Help me understand. I don't get how this fits. So Jesus, in response to this accusation, he doesn't defend what, that the disciples are not washing their hands. Instead, what he does is that he points out that his, their traditions that they have added were not helpful and that they may have been even harmful in the effort towards the righteousness that they were working towards. Even though the traditions of the elders were meant to help people to keep the law, they actually could have caused them to break the law. And he gives an example. He uses the commandment of, that God gives to honor your father and mother. The tradition of the elders add on that they could have, was that they could have vowed to God a support that would have supported the temple. So they would make a vow to support the temple, and if that vow and that support meant that they did not have anything left to support their parents as they aged, then it was okay because it was a vow to God. But what happened was it allowed them to violate God's commandment of honoring father and mother. And so this, was one of the, this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, why do you allow people to go around the commandment that God has given to honor your father and your mother? And he calls them hypocrites. A hypocrite, Google says, a hypocrite is a person who puts on a false appearance or virtue of religion. Seems like a fitting definition. He's saying, you are saying the right things, but you are not, what you are doing doesn't match what you are saying. It's not about what you do. It's about the condition of your heart. And that's where we are going with this. The question is, what motivates you? He goes on to, act, to, to explain what actually does defile a person. The law says in order to be faithful to, G to God, you must live pure and righteously. Do all of the right things. Jesus says purity and righteousness is a matter of the heart. What can defile or contaminate or spoil a person's faith in God comes from the condition of their heart. It's on display. It's what comes out of our mouth. It's what we say. It's what we do. So people are watching how we interact. And so he's saying it's not about doing the right things. It's not about sitting in church. It's not about the appearance of doing the right things. It's like really what is in here, what motivates you. It's about the purity of your heart. 
That's what faith, that's where faith comes from. That's what Jesus is saying when he is telling them, this is actually what defiles people. It's a transformation from the inside out, not the other way around. I have heard many people say, your doing ought to come from your being, right? Your being in Christ, the condition of your heart, and out of that comes the right words, the right actions, because they reflect your heart and your desire. The Pharisees did not get it. They didn't see it. And he says they were blind guides leading the people that needed guidance from them. And we hear this, we hear this sometimes around in normal, like maybe workplaces, at home, it's the blind leading the blind. Eric and I were setting up just before this some of the technology, and it kind of felt like the blind leading the blind, except that Eric's not quite blind blind. Maybe he just has the wrong prescription <laughs> or something. I'm literally blind. <laughs> so then John came in and helped us, and he is very, he, he sees, he knows it. So the blind leading the blind, it's not helpful. They're not leading people to a spiritual or eternal gain with what they are doing. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. They didn't get it but there's somebody unexpected that did get it. And when we move on, our, our Bible says, puts this title on here, The Faith of a Canaanite Woman. After the run-in with the Pharisees, Jesus has a little bit of a run-in, an interesting run-in again, with a Canaanite woman. She's a Gentile, which means she's not the target audience of Jesus. The way she addresses him reveals that she knows who he is because she said, Lord, son of David. And she does this because she needs her daughter healed. Jesus' response, Jesus's response to her seems harsh. And there's a lot of debate around the use of the words that he, or the, the wor- use of the word dog that he used and makes reference to. There's something bigger going on here because Jesus told her that he was not sent for her because he was a Gentile. Or sh- Sorry, she was a Gentile, he was not. She doesn't accept his response and she moves closer to him. Again, addressing him as Lord. And he responds with an analogy of the children and the dogs. So here, the children's bread refers to the care God promised in his covenant with the children of Israel. And the dogs are actually a a derogatory metaphor for the people that are outside of Israel's covenant community. And so you can see understanding what those two things represent, why this might be viewed as a harsh um, response from him. Verse 26, 
He answered her, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It is not right for me to give you what I have been sent to give to the lost sheep, the Israelites. I can't do that. But she's bold. Like this lady, first of all, she's a Gentile. She recognizes who Jesus is and she addresses him. And she doesn't stop. I kind of like her. She acknowledges the dilemma that she's in, but she pushes back again. She says, even the dogs get the children's crumbs off the master's table or eats them off the floor. Although Israel was the primary in the covenant blessing, the Gentiles could also be recipients of the blessing. And Morris struck me, um, he described it this way. Jesus came to make atonement for sin, which would mean salvation for people any place throughout the whole wide world. So even though his mission was not worldwide, People were going to benefit. People were going to see. This woman saw what he was doing. And so she's saying, yes, but I see it, and I want it too. What is significant about this woman is that she had this openness. She recognized who God was, who Jesus is, and she had this openness she believed he was who, they, who he said he was. She acknowledged his true identity, and her heart was open to receiving him. This brings us back a while ago when Eric was talking about this idea of hospitality. When Jesus was teaching the disciples and telling them what they were going to do going out, when they came upon a home that would receive them and take them in, this was a home that was also open to Jesus. It was a safe place for them to be. And so I look at this woman's heart and see this openness to him. She's open to receiving him, and he recognizes that. He recognizes the significance of her faith, and he grants her the healing of her daughter. Again, we see that is about the condition of the heart, and it's not about who you are or what you do. There's another observation that is, it was interesting to us this morning. We go back to Jesus feeding a large crowd. It feels a little bit like deja vu. This crowd is smaller. However, the disciples have more bread and probably more fish. And they're still like, how are you going to feed this crowd? And we're all like, are you kidding me? You just saw this man feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. How can you not understand or even like look ahead and see that he could possibly feed this crowd? 
the disciples still didn't trust in the power that Jesus had. It's interesting to, it was interesting to us this morning because we look at the disciples and we're like, come on, really? Why is this so hard? You've seen so many things. Why is it so hard for you to believe? The disciples' faith in Jesus seems to waver. It feels a little bit like we're on a roller coaster ride with them. So Jesus walked on the water. The response was fear. Then it was faith. Peter believed. He walked. And then it turned to fear again, and he sunk. And then they get back into the boat. The water calms, and then it's faith again. It is the Son of God. Jesus' explanation of what defiles a person. There's doubt. And then the disciples even say, wait a minute, you've offended the Pharisees. That seems a little off center. You've said something that, def- that offends the Pharisees, and they're concerned about that, and they bring that concern to Jesus. They don't quite understand. And then there's the feeding of the 4,000. They doubt. How are you going to feed them? We talked about what do we expect? Like, what do we actually expect from the disciples? Honestly, before, like when I first started reading the Bible, I thought the disciples were like the picture of these perfect followers of Christ. And the more you read, the more you realize, oh, we're not that different. I had a conversation with somebody yesterday, and we were actually talking about how sometimes we can get impatient when people struggle. They can't actually grasp the idea of the unconditional and gracious love of God. They cannot, they do not understand what that is. And it can be frustrating and heartbreaking when people don't understand what it actually means to find an identity in Jesus and not of things in this world. And we get frustrated. I get frustrated sometimes. I'm like, it's not hard. But then we realize, oh, it's easier to look out than it is in, right? We have no problem looking out and saying, those disciples, come on, you guys. Or we look out at people around us and we're like, come on, you guys, it's not hard. Why is it hard for you to accept the love of God? Why is it hard for you to accept yourself as God sees you? But we do the same thing. It's always easier to look out than it is to look in. And honestly, my faith wavers. I mean, it can waver from hour to hour. It depends on the day. Or it depends on what I'm doing or what I'm facing. It goes back to this idea of like needing that tight grip, right? Because the tighter my grip, the more secure I feel in the control I have and the more ability I have to feel good about a situation, 
it's my default to finding this, this, the certainty that I desire. And we want that certainty. We want to know the answers. We want to know how it's gonna end. We want to know how long. So we might follow the journey of the disciples and think, come on, how many times? How many times does he have to show you and explain this? We look back, last week I talked about how patient Jesus is and what a good teacher he is. He's willing to re-explain, he's willing to reteach, and he takes opportunity after opportunity to reveal himself to all who are watching him. And he does it, he continues to do it, we see it. He walked on water. Peter walked on water. He calmed the sea. He fed the 4,000. He healed the sick. He healed the woman's daughter. He's constantly revealing and teaching and showing who he is because he's patient. So we think, why is it so hard? I'm so frustrated. I'm so frustrated with other people. I'm so frustrated with myself. But I think, oh, I think that's how Jesus might feel about me. Like, how many times, Amy? How many times do I have to show you that when you do this, it's hard? When you do this, the load is easier. When you keep your focus on me, your faith builds. And it happens in my cycle, right, of like this grip, open palms, grip, open palms. Every single time I look back and I'm like, oh, that's right. That is actually how you work in me, through me, around me, and I can see, I can see a secret. So yesterday, there was a lot going on, and there was a basketball game scheduled for my ninth grader, and he texted at like, I don't remember what time it was, early, and he's like, our game is canceled. No practice. I'm like, Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I just get a little bit. Yep, okay. And then I get a text from a friend, and she says, Amy, I dropped soup off for you and your family. It's in the kitchen. There's dinner rolls and cupcakes, too. Thank you for all you do. Happy Valentine's Day to you and your family. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Because I was going to eat popcorn and pizza at the game, I had no plans for dinner. And so this is another one of those things. Like, it's so fresh in my mind. Like, this is how God works. And I can see it. When I pay attention and my eyes are open and my eyes are focused on him, I can see how he's working. And we can see it too. When we're involved and we're staying focused on him, we see God at work. We can see it in us and we can see how he works through us, we can see how he works around us. It isn't always reading, you know, we need this. This helps us to understand the nature of God, 
who Jesus is, right? But when we step away and we act in faith and keep our focus, and I think about things like small groups and, you know, volunteering, being involved here, not just coming, but actually being involved, engaged in the community, that's also a place where we see God at work and we start to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. We keep our eyes focused and things here help us to do that. We help each other to do that. And in community, we are able to see how the kingdom of God works here and now with us. And that's one of the beautiful things that we get to do every Wednesday night. So in the morning, there's a group of people that come together and they talk about the passage for that night and they each have different um, commentaries. And we said this morning, these commentaries are actually part of our community. I mean, these people don't go to our church, but they're part of our Christian community they help us to see how God works, right? And we get to come together, and we get to figure this out and try to wrestle, or we do wrestle, ask our questions, seek understanding to really understand what God is doing, what he wants from us, how we stay focused on him, and what the result of that is. The true faith, what Jesus is saying, that true faith is not what you do or what you're involved in, but it really is what comes out of your heart. That's the source. The purity of your faith is in your heart. So community, we're here, and part of this community is you being able to have discussion in your groups. And so you can go to your discussion groups, and then we'll come back at like four-ish minutes, and if you have questions, like last week, because remember, that was the test. Do you have questions? Okay, we'll see you back here.